From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Federal government spending on cloud computing is at an all-time high. Agencies spent $6.6 billion on cloud computing last fiscal year. A Bloomberg government analysis says agencies including the Defense Department, Homeland Security, and Education will jumpstart delayed cloud acquisitions this year that will push spending up even higher for 2021. The Defense Department's using fixed price contracts on major weapons systems more than ever. More than $30 billion of the $63 billion the Pentagon spent on major programs in fiscal 2019 were firm fixed price or firm fixed price with incentive contracts. The Government Accountability Office writes the department should pay closer attention to the incentive-based contracts. The General Services Administration's e-offer and e-mod contracting sites will be offline for two days next month for a login upgrade. The agency will update both sites to use the FAST ID system. NextGov reports the sites will be offline March 6th and 7th. Vendors will need FAST IDs starting March 8th. Budgeting and business reform are two items Kathleen Hicks will focus on as the Deputy Secretary of Defense. At her confirmation hearing, she talked about improving defense spending and managing business operations efficiently. Mackenzie Eaglin is resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Mackenzie, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I'm struck by the willingness of a new deputy secretary of defense in any administration to really take on some, uh, some pretty historic challenges in budgeting reform. Some of the things that Kath Hicks has talked about are pretty striking in, in the potential ramifications for budgeting across the department, aren't they? They are, and it shows what a deep insider she is and the decades of knowledge she has working inside and outside of the building. Uh, but she, you know, she wrote about this in her foreign affairs article in the spring, and, and that a lot of those thoughts came out in the congressional hearing. The question, of course, is whether she can have that partner in Congress to make some hard choices. And what are some of those that she was calling for? She wants to end the use it or lose it, you know, spending spree at the end of the fiscal year when the department goes and buys a bunch of flat screens or whatever equivalent uh, and, and doesn't isn't penalized for not using all of their money uh, by the end of the year. She, she talked about um, ending the focus on service budget shares. If you make a tough call to, say, cancel um, a cherished weapons program or something, that you also will get to keep that money to reinvest and that you know it won't be taken from you. Um, she also talked about um, ending pass-through funding, for example, something we've talked about for the Air Force. In particular, I think the Air Force is hardest hit by this sort of money that it's not really belongs to the, the headquarters Air Force, but it belongs to the U.S. intelligence community and just sort of sits in their budget. But it's, you know, anywhere from 20 to $40 billion per year that the Air Force doesn't control. If you take that off the books, it fundamentally changes the budget debate in the building and on Capitol Hill about, you know, shares and, and what we're actually buying with those dollars. I recall reading that article, Mackenzie, and thinking, not thinking about her at the time as a potential candidate to be the Deputy Secretary of Defense, but thinking about her as somebody who really knows the issues, as you say, really has been doing this for a long time as an, an absolute professional and thinking, those are all great ideas. Those are ideas I can't imagine the committees of jurisdiction being willing to give to somebody. Is there an inflection point that we may be at that would allow Congress to give ground not necessarily just to her, not necessarily to just this administration, but just to the department in general. 
I totally agree with you. I mean, these are these are goals that are aiming quite high. They require consistent attention by the deputy and a little bit of a bully in the secretary himself to push these through, right? They have to constantly be advocated for. You have to do the shoe leather work on Capitol Hill behind the scenes to build your case. Some of these are issues with the authorizers, but in many cases, this is working with appropriators better. And if you looked at the 21 defense bills, appropriators continue to be unhappy with Pentagon leaders as they provide ever more reams of documents, enough justifications, information, and data to, to fill my room and yours each year, and still isn't enough to satisfy Congress. So if she could overcome this burden once and for all and find out the better way to do things, that would really help. She talked specifically about innovation, right? Um, meaning finding a way to do things faster on software in particular, right? We all know that you can't have these sort of classic major defense programs of record uh, for things that need to move a lot faster, like software. And, you know, Congress continues to sort of do this very small potatoes and not in a mass, they haven't scaled this concept well. And that's something I think Kath could could do, uh, Francis, but she's definitely going to have to take small bites at this apple, but I'm cheering her on because this stuff has to get done. I'm not thinking specifically pertaining to Secretary Hicks, but just more broadly to the enterprise. Is there an opportunity for simplification? As you're describing, you know, the documents and so on, it strikes me, maybe explaining this stuff to Congress and explaining the import Maybe simplification, maybe more broad strokes than detail is the right approach because we've been adding more detail for decades and the process isn't improving. That's exactly right. So I think simplification and better relationships and trust are, are really the key ingredients. You're totally right. Uh, you know, and the Hill is receptive to that, right? So again, if you look at the 21 bills, they talked about wanting better data visualization from Congress. So they don't just want the data dump in a bunch of Excel spreadsheets, right? They want it to be easily digestible to help the Pentagon, you know, move faster and make better decisions and choices and for Congress to do its oversight. So in fact, I think that's a code word for simplification if you're if you're really getting at the heart of what they asked for. Uh, you know, the bureaucracy, you know, they've been slow to get to this place, but uh, the technology is there, and they just really have to figure out how to thread that needle. I suppose simplification at the Defense Department is on my mind because I had occasion to look at a couple of slide decks from DOD this week, and simplification was not what I saw there. In the minutes that we have left, Mackenzie, your takeaway from Secretary Hicks's comments about what's happening with the office of the chief management officer, the responsibilities that used to live there and are now dispersing across the enterprise. Yes, so she talked about needing a partner in Congress again for this as well. Pretty much many you know, of her answers ended with, and I look forward to working with you, which I do believe is true. Uh, but essentially what she said was she, she has read the memo by the current Deputy Secretary of Defense, David Norquist, and his proposals to shift a lot of those duties um, in various offices throughout the department. But I would say the bulk of the responsibility will fall to the Comptroller's office, no surprise, since that's where David came of age. Uh, and Kath, uh, Dr. Hicks, excuse me, indicated that she largely supported the contours of that memo, but of course wants to get in and understand its details. I suspect we'll see that framework be the one that they largely move out forward with under Hicks as deputy is so you'll see the comptroller taking the lead role for many of those CMO duties with uh, Cape and the deputy uh, picking up the rest. Mackenzie Eaglin, thanks very much as always. Thanks. Up next, are best in class contracts really what they say they are? Straight ahead on Government Matters, lessons learned from a contracting fail. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The Office of Management and Budget says agencies should buy from best-in-class contracts wherever they can, but low prices on those contracts doesn't always make them the best. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners and writing about best-in-class contracts in the Week Ahead newsletter. Larry, it's great to see you. Give me the thumbnail quickly on what a best-in-class contract is, because it seems like every time I ask a procurement professional, I get a different answer. Francis, a best-in-class contract is an indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract that has been classified by the Office of Management and Budget to meet certain criteria. Some of those criteria are objective, like low price. But beyond low price, industry would argue anyway, we start getting into some subjective criteria. Uh, it may be the contract vehicles that are most popular with the Office of Management and Budget and the agencies that have done the best uh, sell job on OMB to convince them that their contract programs hit all the marks. Interesting nugget in your newsletter, total dollars flowing through best-in-class vehicles have risen, but that spending has really only kept pace with overall increases in contracting. Contractors that hear the buy best-in-class message have to ask themselves whether they're hearing a reason or an excuse. What's the difference, Larry? Well, if you're in federal sales at all, or even general sales, Francis, a reason is an actual real thing that means I can't buy from you because you don't have this particular vehicle. That's a reason. An excuse is I can't buy from you because you don't have this vehicle, but I'm gonna turn right around and buy from somebody who I like better, who may also not have a vehicle uh, that's considered best in class. If you're a salesperson, you can work with a reason. You can get to a reasonable conclusion with most customers with an excuse that's kind of the door slamming in your face, and it's going to be very difficult to pick that conversation back up. Yeah, it's hard to, has to see how you overcome that objection. How do you make sure that it is a reason and not an excuse. What can one do if one is not on one of these best-in-class contracts? Well, Francis, I think really what you're looking at here is the numbers. You talked about the total dollars going up, but the percentage of dollars flowing through best-in-class contracts remains the same at about 7%. That's been constant since at least 2016. By the way, these just aren't Larry Allen's numbers. No one, and for good reason, would trust Larry Allen math these are numbers put forth by Bloomberg government. And if you look at this and you're a contractor that doesn't have a best-in-class contract, well, you kind of maybe want to look towards getting on or at least having your products or services represented on one of these. But it apparently is not going to be the huge roadblock to federal business that OMB and others would have you believe. If 7% of the spend is going through best-in-class contracts, that means that 93%, by my count, uh, is going through something else. What's it going through? It's going through another indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract that buyer feels more comfortable with, that the seller feels more comfortable with, probably a vehicle that they've used before and they know how to manage their acquisition. And it may be a vehicle that the contractor recommended to the buyer. If you're a contractor, there's no reason why you shouldn't recommend one or two acquisition methods to your buyer. That's part of the business development process. And if they're thinking best in class contract and you don't have one, trying to convince them to use something that 
AB is better, but not officially best, is something that your sales team can pull off. Um, a quick fact check, Larry. You did get that last one right. 93 and 7 does <laughs> still equal 100. <laughs> who needs to do what if this is, if the point of this is to use these vehicles, who has to do what to get that number off 7%? Well, history has shown, Francis, that central directives such as the one coming here from the Office of Management and Budget don't always play well throughout the federal government. It's a big government. It's very diverse. It's across the country, indeed, across the world. And it's tough to get people to always sign on to something that comes from Washington, even though we all think we're mighty important here. So I think if you're going to solve the best-in-class issue, you're going to have to empower officials at the local level, officials that are at, in regional offices and federal uh, agencies, and make them both accountable and incentivized to use best-in-class contracts. It is indeed a mix of the traditional carrot-and-stick process but you're not gonna be able to get it done from sitting in Washington. It's that person who's located out of the Federal Office Center in Denver that you're going to have to convince and you're gonna to have to make it worth their while. We're starting to run out of time, Larry, but the terminology here is something that I know drives people who are outside Washington completely crazy about the government. Why not make them all best in class? Well, indeed, we've heard a lot about that and there's an argument I think to be made for that, Francis, if you look at the GSA multiple award schedule program, naming just one contract. There are certain schedules, there are certain parts of that schedule that are deemed best in class, but there are others that are not. And yet GSA in 2020 did what? They went through a schedule consolidation. So how, if you are a federal buyer, are you supposed to figure out, is this specific schedule best in class or is the one two backyards over best in class? So I think there's a strong uh, argument to say, look, best in class is a minimum set of criteria that you need, and we would not have allowed an IDIQ contract to be put in place if we didn't think it was best. Larry Allen, thanks very much as always. Great to have you on. Francis, thank you. Up next, tracking the return to the office at government agencies. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the must-dos and the can't-dos for back to the building. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Welcome back. Government agencies in the Office of Management and Budget are working on plans for employees to come back to offices all across government. But some federal employees who have been just as productive or more productive at home may not want to come back. Ricardo Pitts-Wiley is partner at Federal Practice Group. Ricardo, it's great to see you again. We talked a little bit before we went on the air about a conversation with an agency chief human capital officer uh, that I had the end of last week telling me, although that agency has not put out any plans or given any indication of what they want to do to come back, employees are already reaching out to that HR office and saying, we want to keep doing it the way that we're doing it. What can employees do, what should employees do in those conversations with their bosses and with their HR officials? Well, at this point, uh, you know, in light of the pandemic, uh, the federal government agency is still in a maximum telework uh, policy status. Um, so 
to the extent that um, you know some employees have been brought back or are about to be brought back into the workplace, the best thing that those employees can do is uh, start a dialogue uh, with both their management chain as well as with human resources. Uh, you know, these various human resources offices uh, throughout these agencies are uh, still in the process of, of developing, understanding, implementing the best approach to dealing with the pandemic. Uh, and there is a, uh, an instruction uh, of, or actually strong encouragement from the Office of Personnel Management for agencies to continue to be flexible in, in thinking about strategies. So start with a conversation uh, and identify you know, what your concerns are and also identify what your capabilities are. And the capabilities piece is the part of it, I think, that is the most striking because as I alluded to in the intro, Ricardo, there's a lot of folks that are demonstrating they could potentially continue to keep working remotely for the foreseeable future. And I, I wonder if there is an element to making that case that will be important for folks that want to do that. How does, how does one go about deciding, this is how I'm going to show my office, I'm doing what I need to do and I should keep going the way I'm going? Well, it depends on the type of work that you do. Uh, you know, some particular positions, there are uh, definable metrics in place. And so it's easy in that circumstance to uh, to show what your productivity rate has been. Uh, but otherwise, you should just demonstrate the type of work that you've been able to accomplish uh, since the pandemic, since you've been on a telework status, um, and compare that to uh, previous performance periods uh, where, you know, there was no pandemic in place, and, and, and demonstrate uh, that, you know, there has either been an increase or at least no uh, decrease in terms of uh, quality performance output. If I have been doing that, can they make me come back to the office at some point? If, if, I, if I'm obviously getting the work done remotely, can they make me come back, Ricardo? Well, un unfortunately, uh, you know, performance uh, is not the uh, it does not, you know, provide an entitlement to uh, be able to telework. Uh, but I do think that, you know, employees are in a good position now to be able to talk about telework uh, because they've been able to do it successfully for a sustained period of time. Uh, and I also think managers are going to be hard pressed uh, to require employees to come back into the workplace unless they're first able to demonstrate that it's absolutely safe there. And that's where I wanted to go next. If I have reason to believe as the employee that it's not safe to go back and they call me back, how do I make that case? And, and what, are the, what are the real objective markers for that rather than just something that I think? I imagine some of it's based on what my personal situation is, but some of it also might be based on what's going on in the building that they want me to go back to. Right. So just as, as a general rule, an employer can instruct their employee to come into the workplace. Uh, but there are some uh, some restrictions on that. You know, one obvious one, I think, is reasonable accommodations. If an employee believes that they are entitled to a reasonable accommodation, then again, that's a, a, uh, a dialogue that they need to begin um, with their agency. And every agency has uh, slightly different rules about how to do that. Uh, either you can talk to your manager or perhaps there's uh, someone in human resources or 
a uh, reasonable accommodation coordinator. Um, but aside from that, if there are concerns about the safety of the work environment, then that is something that an employee can also still have a dialogue with management and human resources about, but also uh, by going to OSHA. And OSHA, I believe, uh, has been invigorated and emboldened to do more uh, in light of recent memoranda and executive orders uh, from uh, President Biden. So I think that OSHA is going to play a much more significant and effective role in, uh, in combating the pandemic and ensuring that individuals that don't need to be or should not be in the workplace uh, due to their vulnerability uh, will not have to be required to go into the office. Ricardo, we have less than a minute left. What will you watch in the coming weeks as agency plans start to come out theoretically and as we start to see more policy about returning to the office? Well, like I said, because of the pandemic, there has been a maximum telework policy status in place. And I just think it's gonna be really difficult for us to return to pre-pandemic telework norms. So I expect there to be an expansion in terms of telework policies for all federal government agencies. And the the reasons uh, for doing so are long, and, and perhaps you'll come have me come back on the show. We could talk just about that. Thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you back. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our shows when you get our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.